In the beautiful state of Oaxaca in Mexico, there's a growing trend. Snowbirds, i.e. people who escape from Canada and other cold climates for the winter months, are claiming beachfront land. They are buying into developments for properties, being promised that these properties will be their perfect vacation home. The problem is, the land that's being developed is not up for grabs. It's communally owned by Indigenous and rural residents. We're curious about this growing trend, and so today we're chatting with Dawn Marie Paley. Dawn is a journalist and author based in Mexico, and she wrote a piece for Breach Media covering this issue. We're going to unpack why this is able to happen, because let's be real, it sounds pretty colonial. And we'll talk about how gentrification is impacting Mexico and, of course, how tourism is contributing to it. Is this the first time that you've listened to Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast? If so, make sure that you've hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because there is plenty more to come this season. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at Curious Tourism Pod. You can DM us or email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the episode description. Okay, Erin, um, I am so excited about this episode because it includes one of my favorite things, which is juicy gossip about the travel industry. And one of the things that we talk about with Dawn is the impacts of Airbnb in Mexico City. But there is some recent travel news around Airbnb that has come out that I wanted to talk to you about. I really wanted to hear what you think about the recent ban on Airbnb that came out in New York City. So yes, we need to discuss this. Okay, there's one thing I need to say off the bat, though, that I thought was really interesting, because the New York Times did a great episode about this, about what it means and the impact it's having. And one point that they made is that Airbnbs actually makes up a really small percentage of the apartments that are in New York City. So the journalist that was covering this was saying they're not actually sure this will have a huge impact on like housing. Okay, that's very interesting because I was reading an article about this from Wired and they kept referring to like Airbnb listers as business owners. And my immediate reaction was, okay, if they are taking away the ability for people to profit off of human rights, aka shelter, then I am all for it. But then also I went on to Airbnb and was looking at just like the sheer amount of Airbnb listings that are on there. And like there's a pretty good amount of listings in New York City on Airbnb. Like I was planning a trip to New York City last summer. I was fully planning on booking an Airbnb because I was thinking it's so much cheaper than hotels. So now I'm thinking, okay, if all of these listings are gone from Airbnb, then I kind of hope that there's some sort of regulation in place that makes hotels more affordable because people ultimately did gravitate towards Airbnb because it was a cheaper option. Not that it is really anymore, but like, you know what I mean? In my mind, what it comes down to is back in the glory days of Airbnb, in which I was extremely invested, I literally was a host at that time. This was like six, seven years ago. In those days, Airbnb was about renting out like a spare room. Luke and I used to rent out the spare bedroom in our apartment and we did it 
in part because we could barely pay our bills and it was a nice way to help. But we also did it because we loved meeting people. Like I'll never forget like the couples that came and stayed with us. There was this Brazilian couple that stayed with us for like two weeks and they sent us emails after like thanking us for all our recommendations. It was just like a really fun way to engage with like visitors and share our neighborhood with them. Those were the glory days of Airbnb because at that time, Airbnb was cheaper because you typically were staying in someone else's house. I remember Phil and I, when we were backpacking around Scotland, we only did that. Like we were always staying in apartments with Scottish people. And that was like part of the fun of it. Yes, it was cheaper, but it was also fun. But nowadays it has become like really like maybe commercial is not the right word, but it has just turned into like a business for people because now it's pretty rare that you see Airbnb listings where like you're actually staying in someone's home with them. It's typically just like an apartment that someone has rented or bought for the purpose of Airbnb. 100%. I do agree. Like it's, it's basically just a hotel then. And I don't find that it's cheaper anymore. Like it usually costs around the same. And then the point I was going to say about New York is like, New York is just always going to be expensive at this point because like those properties are in high demand. I don't think there's a world in which like hotels are going to become cheaper, but Airbnbs won't become cheaper either. So in my mind, like the most important thing is that like locals can afford to live. And I don't know, this journalist from the New York Times was saying like this ban might not make a huge difference for people like looking for apartments. It's not going to like automatically bring down the price. It might like inject more housing availability, which creates less competition, I guess, for apartments. Okay. I have so many thoughts because if you're in New York City, how do you even find all of the Airbnb listings on there? Because you could go on to Airbnb and find all of the listings that exist there. But if you're New York City and these people are making money off of their listing, then even if you private DM them, they're not going to reply to you. And if you try and work with Airbnb, they're not going to like be cooperative more than likely. But the big factor here is that now Airbnb listings have to be registered. And there are all these different like nuanced rules around how Airbnb listers have to like be home when the people are staying over at their houses, kind of like back to the old school couch surfing style of Airbnb. But that also makes things tricky for the people who do have their apartment listed on Airbnb and like might be gone for a weekend and just want to like make, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks from somebody staying over at their place like for a few days while they're not there. And like not all the time because this isn't their second home, but also Like they live in New York City, so it might be nice to kind of help out with the rent. I just wonder how New York City is going to deal with relying and hoping that people are actually going to register their Airbnbs, but also deal with all the little nuances of how Airbnb really does help people kind of pay their rent and like get by day to day by living in like a very expensive city. There's just so many little factors at play here, and I am just very interested to see where this ends up in a year from now. Well, in Toronto, it hasn't made much of a difference. We didn't have Airbnb banned, but they did introduce like way stricter legislation around it. So like now in Toronto, you have to own the property. You can't be renting a place and you have to apply to the city for a permit for short-term rentals, and then you have to provide that permit to Airbnb. So they really tightened it up here in Toronto, but like 
I don't know. I haven't noticed any difference. The apartments definitely aren't getting cheaper. <laughs> no, that is very true. You are never leaving your apartment ever. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an interesting idea. I'm very excited to see some sort of crackdown on landlords. But again, we will see where this sits in a year from now, I guess. Okay, so also there was some travel news that you wanted to talk about. So lay it on me. Yeah, so I recently read in the news that Egypt is going to be changing the entry requirements for Canadians. Okay. So it used to be an e-visa, which means before you arrive in Egypt, like within three months ahead of your arrival, you can apply for this e-visa. It's an online form. You submit it. Usually within 48 hours, you receive your visa. And then when you arrive at the airport, you just show this like QR code and you're good to go. Lots of countries do this and Canadians with our passport privilege are very used to e-visas because it's, you know, we have passport privilege. So most countries will let us apply that way. Egypt has changed the rules. Now, as of October 1st, Canadians will not be able to use an e-visa. You'll have to apply directly through a consulate for a visa to go to Egypt, which is much more work and much more complicated. And I saw on Reddit the most interesting like thread of essentially just like Canadians complaining about this. And I just thought it was so interesting because I was like, this is the reality of like most people in the world having access to e-visas and having our passport privilege like makes travel so much easier for us. It's just interesting to see how upset people are when that like privilege is taken away. I mean, it is funny because (laughs) in you telling me this, my immediate reaction was like, okay, how is this news though? Well, it's in the news because they're definitely going to have Canadians showing up without a visa now. I know. That's why it's so funny because like, I don't think a lot of people think about how convenient and easy it is for like Canadians to just be romping around all over the place. Well, no, like applying for visas has always been a thing. Like my mom, when she tells me about when she was traveling in the 80s, she was like, you always had to go to a consulate. Like e-visas are a pretty new thing. But I think a lot of people of our generation are just so used to like showing up and like, have you ever had to apply for a visa before going to a country? No, I have never applied for a visa. Exactly. Most people haven't done it. And I've actually only done it a couple times. Because like for Canadians, we just have like so much privilege behind our passport. It's like so easy. You literally just have to show up or submit a form online and you're in. So it was just interesting seeing. I guess like there was an air of entitlement in the discussion I was seeing around this. And like, is it annoying? Yes. I do intend to go to Egypt like probably in the next year. And it's a bit annoying, but like, you know what? Most most people have to do this when they travel. So I'm going to do it and I'm not going to complain about it because like, it's just a reality of travel. An interesting commentary I saw in the thread too was like Egyptians saying back to Canadians commenting in the thread, do you know how hard it is for us to come to your country? <laughs> so part of me is like, mm, maybe this is Egypt being like, F you for making it so hard. We're going to do it back to you. (laughs) Honestly, I'm all for that. I am down with all of us who have passport privilege being humbled every once in a while. (laughs) Wait, okay. I have more questions about this then, because if you're like country hopping, do you have to go to the consulate in that country to then get your e-visa like mid-trip? Like, what are you expected to do then? There's like, there's no easier way to just like do it online? No. 
Like, what if there's no consulate in the country that you're in? Like, you have to leave the whole ass country to, like, go to a different country to go to that consulate to get a visa for a different country that you're going to? Wait, what? Oh, yeah. Like, it's a nightmare. You should hear my mom talking about it. She's like, every time we switched country, she was like, in my day, you had to slow travel because it took, like, two weeks just to get your visa to the next country. <laughs> if only we actually had that much vacation time to yeah. go to consulates and wait like weeks on end for visas. So yeah, that's just a little bit of the interesting travel news that has come out recently. There's quite a few other interesting stories out there. But if you find something very interesting that you would like Erin and I to talk about more, please send it to us. Send us stuff that you find interesting because I'm always curious. I'm very much involved in the travel Reddit. Are you involved in the travel Reddit? I had no idea. (laughs) That's where I get a lot of these sensational travel news bits. But yeah, (laughs) I still can't figure out Reddit, but I'm there with you in spirit. All right. Well, shall we start chatting with Don? Yep, let's do it. Well, hi, Don. I loved your article in The Breach. I learned a lot. It sent me down like a rabbit hole of reading about land agreements in Mexico. You are an investigative journalist based in Mexico. A lot of your work is focused on understanding how the war on drugs has impacted daily life there and how it relates to state power. But you've also covered issues uh, related to gentrification in Mexico, which is how we found you. So the article that I just mentioned was published earlier this year, and it covers how Canadian developers are gentrifying beaches in Oaxaca. So I was hoping you could share your path to covering these issues and any personal connection you might have to them. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I started working as a journalist in my early 20s, and being a Canadian, mining was just starting to become something that folks are becoming more aware of is a really problematic aspect of a Canadian foreign policy. And so the first sort of international work that I did was about um, Canadian mining companies and in Argentina. And I did some work in Ecuador on a film called Under Rich Earth, uh, which is about a community resisting a copper mine owned by a Canadian company. Uh, in Colombia and Central America, I spent quite a bit of time in Guatemala and eventually ended up in Mexico. And I kind of ended up with the sense, and I mean, what I what I would do is kind of go between secretarial work in Canada and sort of temping and that type of thing to save up money and, you know, live with a bunch of roommates. And then I'd take a few months and, and come down into the South and, and report mostly for independent media. Eventually, I kind of felt like the story of bad Canadian mining companies was a story that I just was telling over and over again. My first book is kind of a, an effort to take a step back and, and kind of get out of the, the wheel of the bad company coming into a community and dividing that community and polluting that community's land and into a, a much more structural look at sort of how does this fit into capitalism and also how does the violence in these countries and specifically Colombia, Central America and Mexico, what is the what is the violence in these societies attributed to the war on drugs have to do with extractivism? So that's kind of how I ended up working on my first book, which is Drug War Capitalism. And then I ended up doing a PhD in Mexico in sociology um, at a Mexican public university in Puebla, where I'm based. And I've just been here ever since. So gentrification is something we've touched on a few times, um, but it's always sort of in passing. We'll just sort of mention it as being a factor in an issue that we're discussing about, which I think is one of the things that makes it so interesting. Gentrification, I think, is one of those issues that touches so many different areas of life. 
Um, so by basic definition, it's the process where an urban area changes, and it's typically because of wealth. So it can cause changes in housing, create new businesses, and often the original inhabitants of that place are displaced because the cost of living goes up. So Don, I know gentrification isn't your primary focus in your work, but based on your experience, even your own lived experiences living in Mexico, would you agree with this definition or do you have anything to add to it? I mean, I think it's a good starting point. My reporting in Oaxaca was uh, focused on the coast of Oaxaca, which which is not urban. Um, so I would mm-hmm. maybe expand the definition a little bit. It, you know, this can happen in rural areas as well. Displacement to me is really like the key the key word there. Gentrification can appear to be like a very sanitized process. The kind of gentrification that's happening in Mexico City has included you know, entire buildings of residents who've been there for 10 or 15 or 20 years being evicted onto the streets with all of their possessions. Yeah. And would you say that it's always rooted in this power imbalance where it's like wealthier communities coming in and displacing people with less wealth? I think in general, although I would hesitate to maybe use the word communities just because there's so many factors of of who's coming in. Again, if we're looking at Mexico right now, certain places in Mexico, we see that it's foreigners and say people from a wealthy part of Mexico City going to Oaxaca, et cetera. So there's a mix, um, but certainly there's a class element to it. Yeah, I think like personally, I feel like more experienced. That's a weird word to say, but like I've seen the effect of gentrification myself, like in my own city here in Toronto, but I'm not super familiar with the concept of gentrification in more rural areas like beaches. Would you say there's similarities in how it's experienced or are there like key differences between how it impacts um, like a beach versus a more urban city? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think it, you know, it would really depend from place to place. So if, if we're going to go to Oaxaca a little bit, Um, Where I was doing this reporting, which for folks who travel to Mexico might know is around Huatulco or Puerto Escondido. Those are the kind of two main um, urban areas. And between Huatulco and Puerto Escondido and on either side, in fact, of of those municipalities, there's um, rural farming communities that are mixed uh, indigenous, Zapotec and Black majority folks who are, you know, dependent on the same life ways that their ancestors um, have been involved in. Of course, there's out migration and a lot of people are working in tourism, but there's still folks who are dedicated to, you know, growing corn, beans, squash, practicing their traditional life ways. Those life ways are basically what's under threat. I mean, I think the short way to understand gentrification in more rural areas is, is pretty much land theft. So it's not like there's an existing building where folks living in that building are being evicted and different folks are coming in paying twice as much in rent. It's rather this clash of cosmologies or coming from the outside, a Canadian looking at these beaches might say like they're empty. Whereas the folks, the indigenous communities who are living there are saying, in fact, this is where we harvest. This is where we, you know, do these different gathering activities that we've been practicing since time immemorial or are growing actively different crops. That is just like colonialism and land theft, right? And in, in, in that case, and, and I think the other thing, just very briefly in the case of Oaxaca, this is actually true in much of Mexico, is that the land is, is communally owned. So the land title is made out to, you know, it can be dozens. In the case of Oaxaca, it's hundreds 
of individuals who are actively participating in farming on that land. So they are the owners of that land and it should not be sold to any private individual, especially a foreign individual. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get into this specific example more in depth, but before we do that, there's one more question I wanted to touch on, which is like, I think I know the answer. My gut knows the answer, but I do see this debated sometimes and it's <laughs> can gentrification be good ever? Um, and the reason I bring this up is because in the context of tourism, I see some people try to argue I mean, it's mostly developers that are trying to argue this, but they're saying, oh, like this is going to create opportunities for local people to grow their economy. I personally wonder about this because I've seen so many examples of this leading to unsustainable over tourism and people still end up displaced from their homes and their communities. And I also like struggle with it because I wonder what kind of like agency people have over that, it's like, sure, like tourism could help grow our economy. But what if a community doesn't want that? Like they should be in control over that. Um, well, it's good for somebody. Controversially, actually, in Mexico City at the end of last year, uh, the mayor announced that she was signing an agreement with Airbnb to basically promote Mexico City as a hub for digital nomads. And people, you know, immediately started protesting and there just immediately started to be like a really intense conversation and a lot of anger because housing in Mexico City and in other places in Mexico has become so much more expensive, especially since the pandemic. But the argument that the city's making is that if they can capture 5% of the digital nomads in the U.S., that will represent like almost $4 billion of income for Mexico City. And then they go on to make those very familiar arguments about, you know, how that $4 billion will translate into, you know, jobs, opportunities, investment for Mexico, which is supposed to raise the standard of living for Mexicans, right? Um, the question is, where are people going to live? How advantageous is it to have foreign investment when you can no longer afford, you know, when a one month of rent is is three times what minimum wage is in a month. And, you know, the mayor has kind of since walked back a little bit of the enthusiasm on that. But as far as I know, that agreement with Airbnb and, and the city of Mexico is, is still there. So one of the things that happened recently was that one of the sort of local mayors in Mexico City made all of the small stands selling like tortas or sandwiches, tacos and so on. But they often have like hand painted signs on their booth and like depicting like the food that they're selling. And they made them paint over them all and put like an official seal on all of them. Oh. And so it's this kind of thing where people were outraged, right? Because it's like that those paintings, those hand done paintings is part of is, is culture. That is culture. And so what is happening in the process of gentrification is also the erasure of Mexican, of Mexico City culture in these neighborhoods. So it's, yeah, super problematic. And, it, and, you know, why is that? Just to make things, everything homogenous, to make everything accessible, to make everything look clean. Like, what is this? Like Scandinavia? Come on. <laughs> and I think it's important to think about race as well, because the idea of digital nomads is essentially gringos and, and people with passports and people with dollars. And this is in a country where Central American migrants are criminalized, imprisoned, you know, 40 migrants were burned to death in a detention center in Ciudad Juarez a couple months ago. So the digital nomad in Mexico City is very much racialized as a white 
wealthy traveler. And the fact that the government is encouraging that type of travel and that type of arrival, displacing Mexicans, while at the same time just absolutely discriminating against Central American migrants, migrants of African descent, Haitians, et cetera. It's disgusting. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, it feels like a kind of a mar- migration a- apartheid system where there really is absolutely two different classes depending on what passport you hold. The Mexico City example is so interesting to me because it's one that I've seen people have very heated debates over within the digital nomad community because I have said to people like I'm not comfortable going and living as a digital nomad in Mexico City because I've seen the evidence that local people don't want that. And if that's what local people are saying, I don't think I think you should listen to what the people have to say and not the government. But a common argument back is like, I had one person say, oh, well, I'm going to go stay in like Condesa or Roma where all the apartments are expensive anyways, so I won't have an impact because like those communities are already gentrified. Those neighborhoods are already wealthy neighborhoods. It's where wealthy local people live. And so it won't have the same impact if I stay there. And I never know what to say to that argument because it's just like, to me, it's more based on what I'm hearing from local people. That's going to be a better judge of like whether it's acceptable to go there or not. Yeah, I mean, Roma and Condesa are two examples of neighborhoods that have transformed. It is something to think about that that kind of positioning. I think that I think the reality is that that Roma and Condesa neighborhoods, which are sort of quite central in Mexico City, are no longer going to be affordable for digital nomads either. Like the idea of coming and renting a place for two hundred or three hundred dollars a month that doesn't exist in Roma Condesa anymore. Not even close, right? So. It's really always very problematic when people say things like, oh, so cheap compared to New York City. And it's just like, how dare you? Um, Because the, you know, the wages that people are making don't even come close at all to what your spending power is. So, you know, I think those types of comparisons should be avoided. I I don't know. I, I have obviously like I've lived in Mexico now for 10 years. I'm a permanent resident here. It's very difficult to rent an apartment in Mexico. It's you need a lot of documents you need someone that is going to sign legal papers saying that they'll pay your rent if you skip the country. You need really a lot of proof. So a lot of what I think the rent increase, how it's justified is basically making it easy for these digital, quote unquote, digital nomads. I don't think that we should call them that either. But these sort of people working remotely, what they're paying for is is avoiding that paperwork um, and living in these really desirable neighborhoods. But they're paying rents that are like three, four times more expensive than, you know, what it might have been a certain amount of years ago. And again, I don't have all the numbers on this, but I mean, for sure, even compared to other parts of Mexico, these rents in Mexico City are just like, you know, feels like Manhattan. I do think that local people are saying quite firmly, this kind of development is not good. And I guess my question is like, why, why, why do you need to live here? If you're just here to just eat out in restaurants and live in a nice apartment, then yeah, don't come. Okay, so I wanted to talk more in depth about the article that you wrote for Breach Media about how a residential project developed by two Albertans is promising Canadians a, quote, incredibly private and unique oceanfront opportunity in Oaxaca, Mexico. They frame this as a chance for snowbirds to buy land and trade winter for, quote, 
live musicians and cold beers. But as we mentioned before, the land being developed is stolen. It's communal land that these developers do not have the right or the permissions needed to develop. So you had a great conversation with Rick Harp over on the Media Indigenous podcast about how this land actually being stolen and developers not having permissions to build there is based on some historical context um, surrounding that land. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that was that was a fun podcast. Rick is awesome. Yeah, yeah. and it made me think a lot too. So Oaxaca is uh, is a state in the south of Mexico. Oaxaca City itself is actually also undergoing like a very deep process of gentrification. It's probably one of the sort of top five destinations right now. I'm just pulling that top five kind of off the top of my head, but that's the sense. Like people, I think you're right because I hear about a lot of people. Who are going Mexico there. City, yeah. Oaxaca, um, San Miguel de Allende. There's, yeah. there's a handful of places that are basically part of a circuit where gringos really like to go. And Oaxaca is one of them. Oaxaca City in particular, you know, had a massive social uprising in 2006, led by teachers, joined by like a broad segment of society. Um, and that uprising was basically quashed after months and months and months of resistance. And what we've kind of seen since sort of the bulldozing or the attempt to sort of bulldoze and just flatten the really radical demands of, of working class people and indigenous folks in Oaxaca, you know, for labor rights, for land rights, et cetera, and really open the city up for a process of gentrification. So the city is connected to the coast by a couple of different, I wouldn't call them highways. They're like twisty mountain roads. Um, it's a fairly long journey, but you can get from Oaxaca City to the coast in about eight hours. And then there's also international airports in Huatulco and in Puerto Escondido. So Huatulco, for example, in the winter has charter flights um, to Vancouver, and I'm not sure, like Calgary, that kind of thing. And Huatulco was actually created through a massive expropriation in the 80s, um, a massive expropriation of, co of common land, of communally owned land. And it's basically like a, a model city or a kind of a, a city built specifically with tourism in mind. And now there's lands all along that coast that are increasingly of interest to, to Canadians, to folks from the U.S., who want basically a second home, a vacation property. There's one resort that I looked at in that article that has been built. It's called Vivo Resorts near Puerto Escondido. And there's a lot of issues with that one, um, also on communal land. And then the one you mentioned, it's called Santa Maria Shadani. So the, the developers are, are saying that it's Huatulco, but it's actually technically not Huatulco. And, you know, the developers claim that their papers are in order. They claim that they have all the rights to the land and so on. But the local people say that that's not true, that it was a series of basically bad agreements and, and getting an inch and, and taking a meter type of thing just to mix two different measurement systems, but where developers ended up moving in and just starting to actually build on the beach on communal land with the proposal of selling individual lots uh, to Canadians. That's, that's the basis of the conflict. I think Mexico is a very complex legal environment at the best of times. Um, and then when you add um, indigenous common land or indigenous communal land into the equation, it just becomes so incredibly complex. But of course the communities have been navigating all the tribunals that they can, because these are basically agricultural lands. Indigenous folks in Oaxaca 
don't use the beaches to like lie around in bathing suits and get sunburns. They use the beaches for harvesting um, food, for harvesting plants and for fishing. And they're actively doing all those things, right? And it comes back to this idea, you know, and I, I, know, I know in the podcast, Rick asked me like, do you know what terra nullius is, right? And that is what is happening. Is, is this, these people coming from outside going like, oh, this is empty because there's no resorts here. So there's no one here. Um, instead of actually spending enough time in a place to see that actually there is a series of uses um, being given to this land that have sustained life in these territories for thousands of years. They just can't see it or they don't want to see it. So it's it's a very deep conflict. And I actually, you know, there was three different areas where where there's the, this problem that I looked at in, in that article in The Breach. One of them, it's already been built and there's people living there. One of them is in the process of being built. Um, that's the one that, that you mentioned and the one that is just outside of Huatulco. And there's a third where they have actually managed to block the entry of these interested parties and there's nothing built so far. So each one is kind of in a different stage as well of resistance and, and, and awareness. <laughs> there's just like so much to unpack about this. There's also like so many parallels that I'm hearing between like what's happening here and what's happening even here in Canada with the way that like stolen land is developed with like no care for how that land is like sustaining life. So it's just really depressing to think about how Canadians are just going and doing that same colonizing, but in other countries as well. But I mean, I think the part that's not depressing is the fact that in Canada and in Mexico, people, indigenous folks are resisting always and to not lose sight of that like that's something i think where we can take a lot of inspiration and a lot of direction as well so there's clearly a connection between gentrification and colonialism could you speak a little to that and explain how these two things connect to each other and and sort of like play into each other yeah i mean in the case of the of the oaxaca coast to me it was very much like this is colonialism I wouldn't have thought about it as gentrification necessarily, but when I spoke to my sources, they were using gentrification to describe what was happening. Especially in rural areas, it's very, it's quite clear that it's it is just an extension of a of a colonial process of removal. What's so interesting though is that during the colonial period, the ancestors on these territories in Oaxaca, all of these generations back, they actually had their land recognized by the colonial government. They have titles, collective titles that predate the existence of the Mexican Republic um, wow. that were granted by the Spanish. And that's, of course, because they organized to demand that their lands be recognized and that their lands not be impinged upon. So it's worth thinking about how what's happening now in some ways is even worse than what was happening during the colonial period when at least these lands were demarcated and recognized by a government. And then, you know, the slow and sometimes fast erosion of those land rights since the Mexican Republic. And then the really ex the acceleration, and it really traces back to Cancun in Mexico, which is, you know, one of the biggest tourism developments in the world that was basically, it's been created over the last 50 years, transforming super rural fishing communities into these just money-making bonanzas for, for wealthy elites, basically. Um, because it has to do, and I don't know if you've talked about this on other on other episodes, but like 
this thing about just like going to the beach and just like lying on the beach. Like, I don't <laughs> know where that comes from. Like, that is I not mean, I've like talked normal about behavior, how that's... you know, it's yeah. just weird to me. Like it's <laughs> literally 40 degrees and the sun is going to like singe you within five minutes. And this is not a thing, like not a use that local folks ever gave to, to this land. Like the, the beach sand land is a very sensitive ecosystem Famously in, in Oaxaca, you have the, the baby turtles, um, but you have all kinds of species living in this very like little strip of sand between the crashing waves, because there's huge waves in Oaxaca, and the jungle, basically, right? And then there's the mountains right behind it. But like this idea of going and lying and hanging out on the beach, that was never a use given to that land. And so it would be cool to do a podcast episode about like, how does this thing about just like going and lying on the beach become part of what is desirable to do on your vacation? I mean, I'm very curious about it too. And I, I have a feeling that it like has to do with like leisurely decadent travel and class, but like stretching back a ways. Like there was probably a period in time where they said, what's something we can send like rich people to do that's like very decadent and leisurely. And it's like sit on a beach and do nothing. <laughs> it's recent, right? It's relatively yeah. recent. And so I have researched pressure, this. Right? Yeah, it does have to do with like sort of the rise of accessible tourism. So when like flying became more accessible to the quote unquote average person, which was like really like the 50s the 40s 50s when people started like flying south to go be in beaches <laughs> but yeah I'm really curious like sort of who is accountable for this I guess is my question like obviously these two Albertans hold some accountability in this and it's so frustrating because like especially being Canadian you would think people are a bit more informed about like what colonization looks like but like how accountable are they and how accountable are the people that are actually buying these properties it annoys me because there's such an obsession I find with like Canadians and buying property in like the global south <laughs> because yeah. it's cheap that I mean I said before we went on the air I was like yeah, I don't know too much about like tourism I don't really want to give people advice but I do want to say don't buy land especially communal land in a foreign country like just don't do it like it's not a good idea I think accountability like from my point of view should also I mean it's the Mexican government needs to uphold Mexican laws which according to the constitution and according to agrarian law should be recognizing the titles of these communities, the communal titles, which they have, again, they have these titles dating back from before the Mexican Republic. They also have newer titles from the post-revolutionary era, which is, you know, mid 20th century from the Mexican federal government recognizing their lands as communal. So the fact that they're in a sense allowing the division and sale of these lands is is also really on the Mexican government. I mean, I wish I could say the Canadian government should do, I mean, yes, they should do something, but we've seen how the mining companies get away with anything they do anywhere. Like there is almost no way to hold a mining company accountable. Of course they should be. Um, the Canadian government should be regulating and should be ensuring that Canadian companies are not participating in land theft. But that seems like a far cry.
So something I thought about as I read your article about this development project is the sort of like long view. So what the long term impacts of this would be. I was just thinking like these initial developments could shape what tourism grows into in the area. It could change the way people live their lives, local people. And instead of tourism development being in the hands of local people whose lives will ultimately be impacted the most, it's already in the hands of foreigners. So what do you think this means for the long-term future of that region? Yeah, I mean, one thing is like thinking towards the future is for some reason, Canadians also think it's a good idea not only to steal uh, Indigenous communal land, but also to build like right in front of the beach. So there's a good chance that it'll be underwater in the long term, seeing how things are going now, not to be overly pessimistic or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily seem like the smartest place to be building big concrete three-car garage uh, condos at this point, like literally like a few meters from the shoreline. I think Huatulco gives us an idea. Huatulco having, you know, had the big expropriation, having had, you know, an international airport built, um, having built really from the ground up like a, a mega city. Well, it's I wouldn't maybe not a mega city, but sort of a, a mega large scale tourism development. Cancun is another one. What we see are people, local folks who can no longer access their traditional lifeways, they can no longer access their territories, um, and are basically forced into menial labor jobs, which pay next to nothing. Food insecurity, it's pretty dystopian, honestly. And we can already see it. Like It's not like megatourism is, is new. It's something that folks are aware of, and they're saying that is not the future we want. I've done some work on the Yucatan Peninsula, um, which is, you know, the peninsula where where Cancun is and folks all over the place are saying to me, Cancun is a, is a bad model. We don't want to be scrubbing toilets. We want to be living in our own land for the majority. And again, obviously some uh, intermediaries and especially folks that already have access to capital will do very well off of increased development, increased tourism, increased building, et cetera. But it's it's for the majority. It's 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 not an attractive prospect, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, even just like... This is obviously just personal experience, but going to places myself like that, like I was recently in Puerto Vallarta, I have like gotten the sense from local people that they don't like it. They don't like what their city has become. I experienced the same thing in Belize. I was there last year and we went to this one place that had just been like overtaken by Canadians buying property. And it just, it didn't even feel like you were in Belize anymore. Yeah, I think there's a lot of places in Mexico like that. And I think... You know, there's just something that happens when the economy is is based mostly on tourism. People end up experiencing like a lot of racism from foreigners on their own land and that kind yes. of stuff, right? Like where it just is just yeah. like what kind of, again, it's so dystopian and yet is sold as a place to go relax and like never lift a finger and someone will always be topping up your beverage like at all times or whatever. And I mean, there's 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 always a, a ton of ways to approach this. And there are folks who set up small businesses, I don't know, doing su- surf school or some kind of tour and folks who are able to kind of make a go and, and have an interesting career and, and, you know, do OK locally when there's this, this amount of tourism. But 
I think generally just increases the cost of living. Like wherever there's dollars circulating in the economy, the cost of living is a lot more expensive. It just makes day-to-day life a lot more difficult for for folks. And, you know, the the history is just so... I was in Cabo San Lucas a few years ago and in one of the restaurants, they had a picture of what Cabo San Lucas looked like. It was like in the seventies, it was like a shack. It was a fishing shack. And now if you look at it, it's just like so many hotels, so much wealth concentrated in this little tiny area. And then just like a ton of informal housing, a ton of like not up to scale housing, like housing where people get flooded out every year when it rains, where folks are just dealing with like the really exposed to the climate, really long commutes, really expensive commutes to get to the, to get to the tourist centers. And it's just such a radical, like if you go now, you'd assume it had been like that for so long, right? It just seems so permanent. But in fact, these developments, Cancun is almost the same kind of, it's just a much bigger scale these were these were little tiny tiny indigenous villages 50 60 70 years ago right yeah it's something you know we've talked about on this show before like tourism gets so concentrated and this is how we end up with like examples of over tourism literally all over the world and it's so frustrating because it would be such a better model to spread it out and so then you don't have these like thick concentrations of people just completely changing the face of a place. And then those tourism dollars that people claim are so helpful get spread out as well. If there's more focus on spreading that tourism across a region instead of just like concentrated in one spot. So something we've been talking about but haven't addressed is how (laughs) this is all Canadians doing this. I know that was the focus on your article and it makes sense given you're from Canada yourself. But would you say this is like a Canadian problem or are Americans doing this as well? Is it just a North American thing? It's it's Canadians and and folks from the U.S. primarily. Um, And that's just geography, right? It's just way closer for for us to to come down south than it is for Europeans. I mean, there's like a neighborhood in San Jose del Cabo called Gringo Hill. Like, <laughs> of course, it's a beautiful neighborhood that overlooks the turquoise water. Of course it is. And you can meet pockets of, of gringos that have been living in Mexico for like 10, 20, 30 plus years who don't speak Spanish, who have made no effort to integrate and yet are still welcomed to an extent and again, this is just has a lot to do with with white supremacy and and the way that the way that dollars talk, right? And the way that the passport privilege works. It's interesting you bring up like that it's just geography because I was recently traveling in Morocco and one of I had been there before, but almost ten years prior. So this was my second time, and one of the things I noticed about this time was suddenly all the hotels, or not all, but a lot of the hotels were owned by Europeans. And I usually try to like book places that are owned by people local to like a city or a country. And I was finding it really hard because so much has been bought up by Europeans. And I guess it's that same thing where it's like, okay, it's like South and it's cheaper. So I'm going to go down there and take their property. Yeah. And they can take like a $1 Ryanair flight or something, right? Yeah. So this is obviously a complex issue and I, I doubt that there is a concrete answer to it. But what would you like to see changing 
Um, we've talked a bit about government, so we can delve into that a bit more. But if there's anyone else at fault for this gentrification in Mexico, and maybe like if you think tourism is playing a role in this as well, what can be done to make things better? Yeah, <laughs> if, I mean, it's always, <laughs> it's always a great question. I think the problem is global. I think the problem of gentrification is not just a Mexican problem. And I think the problem is capitalism. No more, no less. <laughs> so, you know, there's obviously things that can be done in the meantime, as we struggle together to end capitalism, like regulating housing, protecting renters, ensuring, you know, that rent increases have to be very minimum amount or that there be non-market housing. I think a lot of the same things that we talk about in Canada could be applied in Mexico there's all kinds of things that I think we're seeing, especially European cities do, to ensure that there's enough housing stock for people to live in those cities. I think Canada is failing to protect low-income Canadians and working-class Canadians and 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 non-Canadians, but residents of Canada. It's a it, maybe it's not a maybe it's not a problem everywhere, but it's like every country, every region has these sort of hot spots that are dealing with this with the very same issues, right? Because a lot of this is so um, reminiscent of what's happening in Toronto. And like I was in Dublin earlier this year and had this exact same conversation with people there about how like rent was so high that if you earn minimum wage, you can't afford to live in the city. I mean, I was in San Francisco recently and people were saying that you are considered low income even if you're making over $100,000. Like I think the cutoff oh is, is over $100,000 US um, oh. for a family for a year. I mean, most of my friends in Vancouver are living paycheck to paycheck, no matter what they're working at. Um, so the, the, so the, I do think like it's a global problem. The issue is capitalism. The issue is the concentration of wealth. I mean, Mexico has extremely wealthy billionaires and then, you know, a, ma a majority of the population struggling with, with food security, with housing security, with being able to access health care, with being able to access education. So, you know, all of these struggles, I think, are are really important. And again, land defense and indigenous communities that are so active all over Mexico and, and throughout the Americas, in fact, and, and beyond in land defense really has to do with just saying no to the system and finding finding ways to continue to practice the traditions that have kept their people alive since time immemorial. Right. Which in the face of this behemoth of capitalism that we're living in is, is, you know, among the most inspiring examples, you know, the, the communities in Oaxaca that are dealing with these Canadians buying their land or they're, they're, they're getting super organized, you know, for a long time, they told me like they kind of, they weren't that active. They weren't, they, their assembly wasn't always meeting. And, and since they've got wind of these projects or since these projects have come in, they've really stepped up their organizing, started doing all the work they can legally to protect themselves and, and so on. Well, so what about people who are interested in traveling to Mexico? <laughs> what is something that you think anyone visiting should know or should take the time to learn about before they plan a trip to anywhere in Mexico? Well, on a very practical level, definitely check out what's happening with security. Mexico is, it really varies. And there's parts of the country that are, that are really not safe. So that's just like on a super practical level. You know, I think what you said about 
staying in hotels that are owned by local folks. I think that's that's like a good start. I think there's a lot of places in Mexico that are absolutely not touristy, but where folks are local people are trying to set up like ecotourism or um, different kinds of cabins, cabanas, like in the mountains or in different places, even some of the beach areas. Um, I was in uh, Nayarit state recently and stayed in a like very chill uh, locally owned cabanas in Oaxaca as well. There's, there's places where, where locals and indigenous folks are running the tourism. They, you know, try to figure out how you can support and stay at those types of businesses or those types of accommodations. And then I think for folks who are planning to stay longer, because that's really what changed, right, was with the pandemic, people aren't coming for a week or two weeks anymore. They're coming for a year or two years or I'm staying forever because they can remote work. I think that has really been a big part of of what's happening with with just like how the rents are becoming so much more expensive, especially in these neighborhoods of Mexico City. But it is all of Mexico City that that is becoming more expensive. And and for example, places like Oaxaca or San Miguel. So if you're planning to stay longer, I think it does get trickier. And I think thinking through why you want to be in Mexico and what it is that you want to do here, making the choice to stay in Mexico for a longer time means like, okay, I'm going to do a year of language school through a local university. I'm going to like... I'm participating in like a painting project. I don't know, you know, I'm learning to fish. I mean, at least something that means that folks come down are actually in contact and thereby accountable to the people that live around them. I think there are ways to live in Mexico. I, I hope that I, I, I am doing it myself that, that involve like being part of community and being aware of the issues and, you know, speaking out about things that, aren't good, like Canadians buying communal land. Again, that's something to avoid. Don't buy communal land. It should be something that's like very well thought out and that and that involves actually interacting with the people that live here. I mean, it just sounds so obvious. It should be so obvious. But if your plan is like, I'm going to go live in Mexico City because my three friends from Toronto live there and it sounds really cool, maybe rethink that plan because you might end up not feeling that great about your impact once you start learning about what it is, right? And on that note, is there anywhere that you would recommend people go in Mexico right now that's not these super popular tourist centers? That's a good question. One of the things I love about living in Mexico is bus travel. Mexico has an incredible bus system. They're so comfortable. They're fairly safe. Like I would say you want to do this, you know, plan your travels during the day. But I think traveling over land can be very interesting and very enriching. But I, yeah, I can't really give travel advice because there's so many issues with security as well once you're traveling over land. But yeah, Mexico has a lot of really beautiful cities and towns and and places. I think maybe before you come to Mexico, maybe just get a little bit more educated about what kind of places there are, what kind of cities there are. Um, and then just make sure you're checking the travel adv- advisories as well before you, before you travel. I mean, sometimes the travel advisories are obviously a little overblown, but some, sometimes, you know, there's parts of Mexico where if someone said to me casually, I mean, people do all the time, Oh, I'm thinking of like driving down 
to Mexico City, it's like, well, don't go that way and don't go that way, right? Because it's just not, it's not safe. But yeah, I mean, Baja California is 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 beautiful. The whole country is 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 really beautiful. I always think about Mexico as being it's a, it's a bit of a universe. Yeah, there's there's a lot to see. I, I wouldn't say like d- don't come to Mexico, but it's something that, that that should be just like anywhere, right? It's it's someone's land. Like you're going to someone's community, you're going to someone's neighborhood. So like figure out where you're going and and try to make sure you're you're staying in a place that's like locally owned and well located and that they'll be able to connect you with local restaurants and actually be able to experience a little bit more on that superficial level. If, and if you're going to stay for longer, try to plug in. Great advice. And we say all the time, like, just remember that you are a guest and the best way to be a guest is to be an informed guest. Yeah. Well, Don, thank you so much. This has been so great. I've learned a lot. I've loved sort of bouncing these ideas off of you. You're so knowledgeable. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. And before we let you go, I was hoping I could ask you to share where people can find you and find your work um, and maybe follow you if you have any of the social channels. Sure. Yeah. I'm working on a new project right now. It's called Ojalá. Ojalá means hope or hopefully in Spanish. And it's actually a bilingual website. So it's O-J-A-L-A, ojala.mx. So we're doing news from around Latin America and reflections, especially around feminist movement and different kinds of organizing happening. And we're we're publishing in English and Spanish. Um, And then I'm mostly just on Twitter. So it's just at Dawn underscore. If folks are interested in the... um, The story we were talking about, that's at The Breach, which is uh, breachmedia.ca. And we have linked it all in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast, is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. Our theme music is called Night Stars by Wolf Saga, David R. Miracle, and the Chippewa Travelers. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, stay curious.